Lord, as we look in the scriptures this morning, I pray that your spirit makes real to each of us the things you want to say to us, no more and no less. Help us to take away the convictions you want us to have and to leave burdens behind that aren't for us. Lord, thanks that your word is truth. We entrust ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you know I was a firefighter for 16 years with the city of Topeka. And I can tell you that emergency services, firework, Chad, police, EMTs, you know, people like this, it, they tend to attract certain kinds of people. They tend to be very capable people, um, can-do kind of people, uh, sometimes called courageous. Uh, we were talking to a city administrator years ago. He said he thought the firefighters were overpaid but that he wouldn't run into a burning building for any amount of money. I'm not sure what that meant, how that all fell out. But, you know, you tell a firefighter they're courageous, most of them feel like what they do, it's kind of all in a day's work. And that's, it's exciting in its own way, but it's all in a day's work. But you look at that from the outside, it takes courageous, willing, capable people to do that work. There's another side of that, of course, if you look at national statistics that have to do with marriage and divorce, for instance, you see that firefighters, depending on the surveys you look at, police, emergency workers, tend not to be perhaps as courageous, as faithful, as successful in their personal lives as they are in their professional lives. So the divorce rates are arguably higher in this group. So you look at this group of people that on one hand looks very successful and courageous and competent and capable and they look pretty good, you look at another phase of their life and maybe they don't come out shining quite as brightly. And I don't say this to pick on these groups at all, but just to suggest that depending on the circumstance you see someone in, they might look really good, but seen in a different light, they might look less so. And that just informs the passage we're going to be in this morning. The bottom line is this morning that we've all got feet of clay, save one. That's where we're going. We finished a seven-week series a couple weeks ago. We're starting a new series, sort of. We're going to be in John's Gospel starting this morning. We have looked at all of John's Gospel in the past few years other than the last uh, few chapters. So we're going to be in John 18 this morning, verses 1 through 27. You can turn there if you've got a Bible and would like to. That's where we'll be parked. Let me just bring you up to speed. If it's been a while since you've been in the later chapters of John... Chapter 18, where we jump in this morning, follows the, what's called the Upper Room Discourse in John's Gospel, chapters 13 through 17. And in that lengthy passage, Jesus has had this long discussion with His disciples. He's had the Last Supper with His disciples. John 17 was what we call Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's prayed for His disciples and people like you and I who would believe in Him through them. That's what's already happened. Jesus has already told his disciples also that one of them would this very night would betray him. And then Judas got up and left their gathering to go and do just that. Jesus had also told his disciples that that very night they would all leave his side, that the shepherd would be struck and the sheep would be scattered. Peter had assured him that, Lord, even if everybody else falls away, I will not. I'm willing to die for you. And Jesus had told him, Pete, you know, before this night's over, you're going to deny me not only once, but three times before the rooster crows. As we read through these 27 verses, this is what I want you to see. There's lots of things in here, but what I'm going to highlight is this. It's clear that John is being very intentional at contrasting Jesus with Peter. Peter and Jesus, in fact, as you read in the story, you'll see it goes back and forth between the two. 
So we're meant to see a contrast or a comparison, if you will, between Peter and Jesus. And it won't stop here. It goes later in, in John 21. Uh, this comes back a full swing. And, and Peter comes up, the end of John's gospel is about Peter, which I find interesting. And we'll talk more about that later. But this morning, notice as we go through the contrast between Jesus and Peter. So we're in John 18, starting at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, his prayer and his conversations to the disciples, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. And if you remember, sorry, I'm going to interrupt as I go through. That's, that's where we're headed this morning. But they were in the upper room in a building in Jerusalem. So they've come down through the southeast portion of Jerusalem. They've come down the little, into the little ravine, the Kidron Valley. And then they've come up to the garden on the Mount of Olives on the other side. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the cohort and the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, comes there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Briefly, you notice that he goes to a garden here, and I'm just mentioning this because it comes up as a a topic. We're not going to spend any time here. Gardens are an important theme throughout the Bible. They start the Bible, they close the Bible. You start the Bible in the Garden of Eden, you close the Bible in the new garden, if, as it were, the temple of God in heaven. And in between, gardens play an important role because they're a picture of God's dwelling place with man. Where does Jesus hang out with his disciples? In a garden. Later on in John's Gospel, chapter 19, where is he buried? In a garden. Where does he rise from the dead? In a garden. A garden's an important theme throughout the Scriptures. Also, this cohort, this is the Roman group of soldiers. You guys know Israel's occupied by a foreign power, by Rome. So the Roman soldiers are there to keep Roman peace. But there are also soldiers who work at the temple, Jewish soldiers. So what Judas comes out here with is a coalition, if you will, of Roman soldiers from a cohort and Jewish temple guards. The cohort's about 600 men. It's assumed there aren't 600 men here, but a group from the cohort is here. And because it's Rome, we assume that they sent out plenty of guys to take care of any trouble that might arise. So they know there's at least a dozen guys there. We assume this is a group of several dozen, probably at least. Along with the the chief priests had their temple guards there with them also. This is also interesting. Remember Psalm 2 said the Why do the nations rage and the peoples devise a vain thing? This is what's going on right here. The nations, that would be Rome, and the peoples would be the Jewish people, and they're conspiring, if you will, together against God's anointed, the Messiah here. And if you look later in the book of Revelation, this theme of the interaction or the coalition of the religious with the political, it's a big issue when you read uh, chapter 17 and 18 about Babylon the Great. It's this religious power riding a political power until the political power says we've had enough and overthrows them. And of course, it's exactly where Jerusalem heads in future years when Rome overthrows Israel in 70 A.D. At verse 4, Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth, that is to this group of soldiers with Judas approaching him, went forth and says to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He says to them, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. When he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. 
This is one of seven passages in John's Gospel where Jesus identifies Himself as I Am or Ego Ami in Greek where He's identifying Himself with the eternal God. God that said, I'm the one who's always existed when Jesus says, I Am. That's the claim He's making. And isn't it interesting that when He says so, here's an armed group in front of Him. Jesus goes out in front of His disciples and He simply says, I Am. And the group in front of Him falls down or falls back. You know, John doesn't explain this any other way. He doesn't say this is why it happened. We're assuming that it's just a burst, if you will, of the divine power that was within Jesus when he identifies who he is to this group that simply in this expression of who he is, power is released so that they fall backwards and fall down. These are armed men in front of him. They're strong guys. Something knocks them over and it appears to be simply the expression of Jesus' power. Jesus says, I am, and they fall back. I think the reason John's gospel includes this is because John wants us to know that it's Jesus who is in control here. The Roman guard is not in control. The Jewish guards are not in control. Jesus is the one who's in control. And so John informs us what other gospel writers don't, that when Jesus says, I'm the one, I am, they fall back. If Jesus wanted to, they could not withstand His power. Jesus is the one who's in control, not them. In fact, He'd said in John 10, 18 about His own life, He said, no one takes it away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. And John's reminding us here, no one could take Jesus' life from Him. He's in control even here. He's the one who has power, but He's acting in meekness so that God's will can be accomplished. At verse 7, Therefore he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Now... Here's the situation. The soldiers are all there. If they want to, they can arrest all these guys. Jesus says, hey, you're here for me. Let the rest go. In other words, Jesus has got their safety. And after Jesus has secured their safety, what does Peter do? He draws the sword to pick a fight. This makes absolutely no sense. But this is where Peter's at. You know, he's, he's acting on the spur of the moment. He's a volatile, volatile character anyway. And the the man he loves and has followed for three years, he sees all these guys coming out after him and to arrest him and to do him harm. And so Peter pulls his sword out. Now, the least Peter is, is he's brave because he's like the firefighter running into the fire. He's ready to go. Pulls his sword out. It's one. Luke's gospel says, you know, the guys say, we've got two swords and Jesus says it's enough. Maybe there's two. No one else is pulling theirs out. So it's Pete against dozens of armed trained soldiers. This makes no sense. And also, it's right after Jesus has made sure they're safe. And he just doesn't get it. He's acting on the spur of the moment and the heat of the moment, but he's missing it entirely. Peter here, he's the weak one. He's not in control. But he thinks he can affect the outcome here, but he's mistaken. Jesus was the one who's in control, who could change everything if he wanted to, but who's meekly going along to accomplish God's purpose. Peter actually here is working against God's plan both for his safety and for Jesus' crucifixion, which Jesus told them was coming up. It was mentioned in Sunday school this morning. 
Pete's almost always well-intended, but he almost always gets things wrong. So when Jesus had told him earlier, we're going up to Jerusalem and I'm going to be betrayed and the Son of Man will be crucified, you remember what Peter says? Hey, Lord, don't go there. That's not for you. He tries to talk Jesus out of the crucifixion. Well-intended, but missing the mark every time. It's the same here. Peter is out here in this setting. Peter's out to save Jesus, and the problem is Jesus is out to save the world. But it's going to take his death to do it. Peter thinks he's helping Jesus. Jesus is like, don't help. Don't help. At verse 12, the Roman cohort and the commander of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. The text will go on to identify Annas was high priest already and before, and he's an interesting character. You remember in the Old Testament times, if you were appointed high priest, you were high priest until you died. Then a new high priest, typically your son. In the Roman era, though, because this religious leader was influential, had a lot of power, the Romans appointed the high priests, and they appointed them as they willed. So if you were at cross purposes with them, they simply replaced you, And any other good Jew who could be a priest, that is, was in the right lineage or family, was glad to take that position. It was more political than it was religious. It was both, but it was certainly an important political position. Annas was high priest, and you've got to tip your hat to this guy. In, In an age of shifting political winds, Annas was high priest. His five sons were high priest after him. His son in law, Caiaphas, was high priest. His grandson, Matthias, was high priest. So if anything, you can imagine again, just in a politically volatile place, this guy was pretty savvy. He and his family ruled the religious climate of Jerusalem through himself and his relatives for decades. So this was one savvy individual. We mentioned also this morning in Sunday school, Caiaphas, the high priest who was currently serving Annas' son-in-law, an ossuary or a bone box was found in Jerusalem several years ago that said Joseph, son of Caiaphas. It's not conclusive, but it's certainly wondered if this wasn't the same Caiaphas mentioned here in John's Gospel. So Jesus is arrested on the Mount of Olives, taken to Annas' house to be interviewed first. Caiaphas, speaking of his son-in-law, was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. That's back in John 11. Simon Peter was following Jesus. The crowd's been up on the mount. They've got Jesus. The crowd goes back into Jerusalem. Peter's following at a distance. Following Jesus, so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. We're not sure who that is. Some think it's John himself. Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. And you guys know in that day, the Houses were surrounded by a court, and you went through a doorway to get in, and there's someone there keeping the door, so Peter has to get permission to enter in. The slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also of this man's disciples, are you? He says, I am not. By the way, just one more contrast. When Jesus, it said, Who are you searching? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am. When they say, Are you his follower? He says, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire for it was cold and they were warming themselves and Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. And you can see this. 
initially in the garden, here's the group, here's Pete on Jesus' side. Now in Jerusalem, here's the group, and here's Pete with the group. He's following Jesus, but now he's at a safe distance. He knows he can't use his sword or his power to save Jesus, so now he does want to see what's going on, but he's kind of keeping, keeping a safe distance and looking out for his own, his own safety. And you guys probably know too, sometimes in a, in a brief moment, it might be easy to be courageous and brave and stand up and do something, but the longer time goes on, the more difficult it is to keep that courage level up and that faithfulness level up or whatever it is. And, and Pete's, he's sliding down the hill here. Verse 19, the high priest questioned Jesus. We were talking about Peter. Now we look at Jesus. About his disciples and about his teaching, Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Annas is still called high priest here, probably just like a president. You know, if a president's interviewed and he's Jimmy Carter, still called President Carter today, the former high priest is still called high priest here. Jesus answered, if I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if right, why do you strike me? So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Jesus in the setting, he knows where everything's going. John's just told us. He knows these are sham interviews, sham trials. He knows where everything that's about to come. And yet he answers in meekness. When he's struck, he doesn't strike back. He doesn't get irate. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't get even. He simply meekly asks, if I've spoken the truth, why are you striking me? Jesus knows exactly what the Father wants him doing, what the Father has planned. He knows he's right where God wants him. So he, the powerful one who could interrupt what's going on, he doesn't. He's making sure God's will is accomplished. Switching back to Peter, verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You are not also of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, says, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. You can imagine, remember back not long hours before, up in the room, Peter's boasting to Jesus. He's confident that he knows his own heart well enough to say, Lord, if everyone else forsakes you, I won't. I'm willing to die for you. Now he's around the enemy's fire, warming himself, and he's just denied Christ three times. Not only that, Luke, in Luke 22, 61 and 62, also adds this, that when Peter denies him the third time, Jesus is looking at him. Jesus sees it, and he hears it. And Pete's gone from up here. He's with the Lord. He's good to go. Whatever happens, Lord, I'm good to go. He's just denied him three times, and you can imagine how he's feeling. It's like ashes in his mouth. All those words, his confidence. Jesus, I'm with you. I'm good to go. He's denied him three times, and Jesus saw it and heard it. And life has just slipped out from underneath his feet. He was confident. He thought he knew what was coming. He thought he knew his own heart, and he didn't. And it's revealed here. He meant well. And he followed Jesus further than all but one of the other disciples. He's well-intentioned and he's going as far as he can, but he hits the wall and he fails. Do a brief review of the contrast John, John has painted here. Jesus knows everything that's happening. 
He knows everything that's about to happen. Peter thinks he knows his own heart and doesn't. Jesus is in control. Jesus has power to affect outcomes here if he wants to. He speaks his name and the soldiers fall down. Peter's out of control. Jesus is following the Father's will. He's accomplishing God's purposes. Peter is following his own ideas at cross purposes to what God wants to accomplish. Jesus is quiet, he's meek, and he's confident. Peter's brave one minute and then fearful and denying Christ the next. This is the contrast we're meant to see. When you see Peter's poor showing and his failure, don't make the mistake of thinking that you would have fared any better than he would. Because this is my take on this contrast. I think the reason John is very intentionally painting this Peter is meant to display your best and my best efforts, not our worst. Peter's here representing somebody who knows Jesus, loves Him, wants to please Him, wants to be with Him. And yet his best efforts are dust and ashes. His best efforts are at cross purposes to God's will. He has no power to bring them about. Everything he does on his own is failure. And Peter represents our best, not our worst. He loves Jesus. In other words, Pete's you and me. Pete has feet of clay just like you and I do. And we bring our best to God and God says, I can't work with that. We bring our best in Isaiah's words. Our righteous acts, they're like filthy rags before God. Pete's not the worst of us. He's the best of us. Courageous one minute. Does this sound familiar? I mean, how many times do you look at your own life? Lord, I'm really doing well today. Look out. You know, the next day I go 10 feet under. God, I haven't done that sin in seven weeks. Where, Where do I go the next day or the next week? Pete is not the worst of us. Pete is the best of us. He wants to do right. Pete's Romans 7's. Where Paul there says, you know, the good that I want to do, I don't do it. The evil that I don't want to do, that's what I do. That's Pete. That's you. That's me. This is the contrast. What does Peter have to offer Jesus in his role of redeeming the world? Not a thing. Peter wants to help, but he can't help. Peter's role in this story of redemption is that he needs redeeming. Peter represents you and I and the best that we have to offer God and help in this process of salvation. What we bring to the redemption story is our need. We bring nothing more than that. If it's not for Jesus getting God's will done, you and I don't don't have a prayer. Because Peter representing our best, good intentions, you know, trying to follow God. This is where Pete ends. This is where we end. We've got feet of clay. Peter's an example. Peter proves the point that we really need redemption because we're inadequate. And only Jesus could successfully bring about atonement and salvation. And this is the thing in the end. Whatever assets you have or think you have, don't rely on them. In other words, if you think you're a person like Peter did of strong courage, don't rely on that. If you're a person with a great intellect, don't rely on that. If you're a person, I don't know, whatever you'd see your strength as, don't assume that that strength means you can somehow do something 
for God. Apart from Christ, you and I have no redemption. And across, apart from His Spirit within us, we don't have the spiritual energy or enlightenment to carry out God's plans. Christ is the only way for us to be saved. And Christ's Spirit in us is the only hope we have of participating in what God's doing in the world today. Apart from that, we're Peter. We're stumbling. We're making our best efforts. It just isn't good enough. It's in the wrong direction. Christ is the only way for salvation, and His Spirit in us is the only power, the only energy that keeps us part of what God's doing, not at cross-purposes to what God's doing. It's Christ's atoning sacrifice. It's His Spirit within us, conforming us to His image, the one who shines with perfection no matter the circumstances. That's where we land. Of course, you know where the story's going. We'll see the crucifixion in the coming weeks and the resurrection. But this is the bottom line. What you and I bring to the atonement, to the story of redemption, is our need. We bring nothing else. It's Jesus who brings salvation and gives us His Spirit. If you're not a Christian, if you've not entrusted yourself to Christ, this is just one more of those reminders that you need Christ. You and I bring to Jesus wood, hay, and stubble, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. You can build a life and it's wood, hay, and stubble. That is, in the final analysis, it's short of God's standard. Or you can trust Christ. He's your atonement. He's the covering for your sin. You can be welcomed into His family as His child, as His brother, as His co-ruler for eternity to come based on what He's done for you. And as a Christian, uh, don't take yourself too seriously. Don't assume things about yourself that you have strength, intellect, capability, whatever, to somehow pass tests. God does test us and He wants us to grow up and this is all a good thing. But when you and I think of ourselves more highly than we should, we are bound to fall. Paul says in Romans 12, think about yourself soberly, objectively, and then offer God those things that you have. He can use them. He will use them, but offer them humbly. Lord, I'm pretty good at this. I'm not very good at that. Lord, you, you help me with these things to honor you in my life. Lord, I give you these things. I recognize my strengths such as they are. I recognize my weaknesses. And I give them to you, I submit them to you for your spirit to use as you see fit. But don't read a passage like this and think you'd fare better than Peter did because Peter, I believe here, is meant to represent the best that we bring. Our best on our own is not good enough. Submitted to Christ, following Christ's example, power under control, knowing the Father's will, humbly submitting ourselves to the Father's will, that's when God's work gets done. It's not through our well-intended but otherwise misguided efforts. We need a Savior, and then we need His Spirit within us to enable us to go about the business He has for us here on the earth. Let's pray. Lord, I'm struck through this story about how often I think I'm doing Your will and full of good intentions but missing the mark again. Lord, help each of us to have a right assessment of how you've put us together, of what our strengths and weaknesses are, so that we can submit those to you on one hand and rely on you in the other. Lord, help us not to assume that we're good to go because we think we have things figured out. 
Help us to meekly submit ourselves to your plans. Help us to see what you're doing and to be busy about the things you've called us to. Lord, help us to do so in trusting ourselves to your care and depending on you to pull things out, to make things right. Lord, we know the future of this world, that it's only when you return personally that things are right. And Lord, we submit ourselves to you and to your goodwill, and we ask you to help us to see ourselves through your eyes so that we can be a part of what you're doing. Lord, thanks that in the end you win, and that as you've called us to your side, we're with you. Lord, thanks that all your good purposes are wrapped up in your Son, Jesus, and that as we seek to honor him, the outcome can only be good. Honor yourself through us and through our lives, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.